Well, uh, some of you know that I'm a uh, high school basketball coach here at Pequay Valley, um, all right? And um, in doing that, one of the things we do as a team is we uh, have team dinners before some home games, which is very exciting. This past Thursday, we were at someone's house. One of the players on my team was about to throw his plate away in the trash can, a paper plate, and on the plate were two half-eaten cookies. Think about that for a minute. Why two? Why not one? I mean, one is one thing, but I'm like, hey, man, why, why do we have two half-eaten cookies? You know what he said? Because I'm like, well, just like finish one. Like, what's the story in that? And he's like, well, the first one, I grabbed it. I thought it was a chocolate chip cookie, but it was an oatmeal raisin cookie. You feel that with me? That's one of my biggest disappointments in life right there. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I have come to learn to watch the cookie texture before I pull it, right? I mean, the oatmeal raisin has that little wavy thing to it, and the chocolate chip doesn't. That's smooth. Remember that. And then the second one I, I ate, but then I was full. Like, really? Like, you, anyway. But do you feel that? So listen, on the, on the oatmeal raisin, like, I really resonated with this guy, like the deep disappointment of that. I'll tell you what else disappoints me with dessert. When I get to a, a birthday party and I get the cake, and the cake is that better cream, not the buttercream icing. Like, I'm an icing person, and when it tastes like whipped cream, I'm like, no, like, give me some real icing. Do you know what I'm saying with that? Does anyone else relate to that? Can anyone else feel that pain? Yep, some of you are like, man, you are such a picky dessert guy. I'm never having you over to my house. Like, now I know what never to do with you. Uh, so, listen, I, I have some funny things that, that disappoint me and, and frustrate me, but you know, all of us have that. Those are some simple things that we can get through. But if I, if I take this theme of being disappointed in things, and if I can turn it um, maybe a little bit deeper real quick, um, being disappointed is, is, a, is just a, a pill we swallow in life all the time. Dealing with the hard things that, that I do to you and that you do to me, that starts to turn the page a little bit more. I mean, I can deal with cookies, but it's harder, and you know it's harder than when we deal with one another. And if I can dive right into the deep end on this one, uh, as many of you know, in our family, it's been a, a challenging couple of years. And uh, so my brother-in-law, uh, Husto, uh, was arrested for the kidnapping and murder of Linda Stoltzfus. And in that process, our family has gone through a lot, as you can imagine. And one of the times we were talking as a family about what to do and how to process these feelings that we were having, uh, a counselor, a family counselor, was with us. Um, and my daughter, uh, Megan, uh, who's my oldest daughter, and she's also Linda Stoltzfus's age, um, shared with the counselor, she said, I don't know what to do uh, with my memories of Husto, because I remember him as a, as a when I was a child, she said, uh, he would chase me around the house, um, and he was the fun uncle. <laughs> like, he would tickle me, he would run around, he'd, he'd laugh with me. And she said, I don't know how to reconcile those good memories with this. What do, I, what do I do with that? What do I do with that? What do you do with that? It's a great question. It's a great question. What do you do with that? What do you do with life when people are full of both good and evil? What do you do with that? And what does it do to you when you can't figure out what to do with it? And I tell you what I think it does. I think it starts to push people away. I think it starts to make us pull back and resist even wanting to engage because the disappointment that we feel sometimes when we meet the deep pain and hurt that other people, even loved ones, cause us, sometimes is too much to know how to handle, and we can't reconcile it, and it becomes too much. The tension is too strong, and I can't bear it, and so I back up from you. And sometimes I back up from God for the very same reason. 
So in this series, Backstory, what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to go back in time, both in biblical history, but also in our personal histories. This series might feel a little bit different to you, and and pardon me if I push a little bit sometimes, because I want it to be personal. I want it to engage your personal story. I just don't ever want us to be smarter Bible people. I, I want us to know about the scriptures, but I also want us to allow the scriptures to really meet us where we are in our own personal journeys. And when I look back in the past, sometimes we can, can feel like, why do you keep bringing up the past? Like, I've, I've moved on. I've moved on from the pain and hurt of my past, and I'm on to something new. And for some of you, that may be, be true. But for many of us, I like the way William Faulkner puts it and brought it up this last week, that the past, I agree, isn't dead. It's not even past. The past, I would argue, the implicit memories from your past, even 50 years ago, can still be driving your behavior in a way that you simply cannot verbalize, and I simply cannot verbalize. The past, I'm convinced, from my life experience at least, it's not dead, and it often isn't even past. And so we began last week looking at Adam uh, and start at the very beginning on trying to understand the nature of humanity. What does it mean to be actually human? And try to invite you to consider your own view of yourself and your own value and worth and where you get it from and where your earliest memories come from. And when we looked at Adam, what I tried to make the case last week is this, that Adam's story teaches us that we're first of all image bearers and second of all sinners. In my life, I've often got that backwards. I've assumed that first of all, I'm a sinner. First of all, I'm broken. I'm wrong. And that's from my own theological training and experience. And I just absorbed that. And I thought, first of all, I'm, I'm wrong and broken. I tried to make the case, first of all, no, no, no. Our humanity is anchored to Genesis 1 before Genesis 3. In Genesis 1, God created humanity in his image. In Genesis 3, man fell. It's a very important, very important distinction for me that humanity is, first of all, of incredible value, first of all. The essence of humanity is the image of God, first of all, not our sinfulness. At the same time, after Adam sinned, we all get to experience both, both dignity and depravity. The dignity of being made in the image of God and the depravity of being sinful. And the question for this morning is this question, in a way Megan asked it when she asked the counselor, but I'm going to put it this way. What do we do with the dignity and depravity in each of us? What do we do with the dignity of God and the depravity of humanity and sinfulness in each one of us? How do we handle that? And I want to invite you right now to start thinking about some relationships where you may feel stuck on this issue. I'll be frank with you, most of these relationships are often among family members, uh, with parents, with siblings, with aunts or uncles, because they're the people that, in a way, you, you have to be around. You don't get to choose your family, and the people who have loved you or tried to love you the longest are also the people who are going to hurt you the deepest, and that's just the way it is. They're not trying to most of the time but that's just the way it is. It's not exclusively a family issue, but it does certainly speak into tensions within every family. But what do we do with the dignity and depravity in each one of us? To help us take a step back so we can see this, I want to invite us to look at a story before we talk again personally about what this might mean for us. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, the very beginning um, Genesis chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the chair near you. That's our gift to you. We'd love to have you take that with you. If you don't have a paper Bible, that's no problem whatsoever. I often use a digital one myself. version app on your phone or whatever is a good option for you. But I invite you to turn to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 6. We're going to look at the story of Noah. Noah. Now, 
Many people, children included, already know the story of Noah. All right, you know the story. We're going to read through it and see some things that I hope will be helpful to you uh, and, then, and then chat from there. So begin with me in Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 5, uh, to set up the backstory of Noah, and then we're going to go forward from there. So verse 5 of chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. Verse 7, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground. For I regret that I have made them. Verse 8, but... Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, this is, a, this is a huge decision by God, all right? Huge decision. Just imagine for a minute how bad it would have to be for God to say, get rid of it all. All of it. Everything. I'm done with it all. And then imagine how huge it would be if you were the only one that God's like, yeah, I'm going to keep you. That's it. All of your peers, all of your family, all the people that have influenced you, only you I'm keeping. Imagine how righteous Noah must have been to stand out in God's eyes. This is really, 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 really difficult to actually imagine in real life, that one person and then one family is saved alone. All right? So this is how big Noah's like righteousness is, if you want to call it, that he would stand out, he found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so then you know the story, Noah builds this big boat, the animals come running to him, we don't know how all that works, 40 days rain and all that good stuff, and around 150 days it kind of recedes, and you know, they settle and they, they get grounded, the water goes away, and, and after they land, if you will, after all this happens and the, the dry ground reappears, we pick things up in Genesis chapter 9, which is where I want to pick right back up. So flip over a couple pages or a couple screens on your phone to Genesis chapter 9 after things have dried out. They get out of the ark, beginning at verse 1, and Noah is blessed. Verse, verse 1. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth, and on all the birds in the sky, and every creature that moves along the ground, and on all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I will now give you everything. This is now complete authority, complete control. He gets to start over the power and trust. This is a complete redo for Noah. And then, verse 8 to 11, God establishes a covenant with him. Verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I will now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. On to verse 16 with me. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it, and I remember the everlasting covenant between God and all the living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God said to Noah, verse 17, this is the sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on the earth. Now this is awesome. This is the end of the movie. This is the crescendo of it all. We've just been through the horror of mass civilization being ended 
God allowing Noah to live in this ark for a period of time and reestablish authority on the earth, establishing a covenant with him and saying, you, you are the one. I'm going to give all authority to you, that everything will come under you. This is how much I trust you. And I want to establish a covenant with you directly, that everyone essentially will be blessed through your work. It's amazing. And then the music crescendos to a high, right? And we fade out with a, I don't know, a panoramic picture of the coast with high mountains and the, the credits, you know, roll and, and the, you know, the screen comes down and then everything's over and it's done. And it was a great story about how, you know, sin was there, but don't worry, God redeems. The only problem, of course, is that that isn't where the story ends. In fact, that's not even where the chapter ends. The very next thing, the very next thing recorded about Noah, this awesomely righteous guy, is his sin. Look at the text with me in verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent, the most righteous man that God made a covenant with. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then when they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body, their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. This is, this is kind of weird. This doesn't show up in the, the kid's wall when you're drawing the picture of Noah and the ark, you know what I'm saying? Like, this, isn't, this is never a part of the story, right? Like, the story is over after Noah is faithful, but no one ever comes to this part. Like, we don't want to talk about this part, right? 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 Because I prefer to ignore the depravity of man, even the people that I respect. But it's here. It's right here. And it's the very next thing that Noah does. What does he do? It's not that taking a drink of something or consuming alcohol itself is, is a sin by itself. The issue is drunkenness and losing control of yourself. That's the issue, is losing complete control. And that's what happened with Noah. This, this marked throughout the scriptures, this marks paganism, if you will. This is what was happening before the flood. And so we flood the earth to start over, and the very first thing we do is the same thing that we did before the flood. And this becomes... Reality. This is humanity. This is the, the ongoing depravity of man. And what's going on with Ham? And why did Noah get so upset with Ham? And like, it wasn't like it was Ham's fault. Like he walked in and his dad was was drunk. It wasn't Ham's fault. You have to understand some of the ancient Near East at that time. In this case, to see your father naked is a violation of the family ethic. It's a violation of your father. Uh, and and what this would mean, the way that Ham did this in this time, in this period, it's a a sense of your father loses power and respect when that happens. There's a shame to that and an honor-shame culture. And so Ham coming out and almost jubilantly or, you know, in a way like, look what I saw, look what I saw, da, da, da. That's not respectful. That's not a way to cover or honor your father's shame. It's a way to exploit it. And what Ham was doing is taking, and this can sound weird to us, but taking power from his father. Because now Ham has authority over him by reveling in his shame. That was the dynamic that was at play here. And so Noah realized that, that yes, I screwed up, but you did too. And so what Noah does goes on in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be his brothers. He also said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem, 
May Canaan be the slave of Shem, and may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the house of, in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. And so now the sin of the father gets passed down to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation, because of this curse of what Ham did. And throughout the Old Testament, the Canaanites come from this period here. They become Israel's enemy for a long, long time in the nation of Israel. It's just what they constantly do. Where does it come back to? This moment right here, where Ham steps in and does this kind of thing. And so, so here's the thing. Noah's story, full of dignity, full of dignity. A righteous man that God saved alone, established a covenant to restart everything with him, and immediately filled with depravity. Immediately. The next verses after establishing a covenant, what do we do with all that? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't find an answer to my question, what do I do with that, in Genesis chapter 9. So, I want to tell you right now, I'm going to share with you some personal things of my journey that I've been walking through. You get to decide what's helpful and what's not. I think that there are some things that have been helpful to me and I hope can be helpful to you. When you ask the question, what do I do in these situations? How do I balance and deal with the dignity and depravity of humanity? When I take you back to the question that Megan asked that family counselor, um, she asked, when the counselor sat there in that moment, and Megan asked, what do I do with the memories of Husto that are good in this reality of the evil that was just done? What do I, what do, I do with that? The counselor asked a question that has stuck with me and has been really profound for me and I think our family. It was really simple but really good. And she put it this way. She said, can you let the good be good and the bad be bad? Why do you have to reconcile them? Can you let the good be good and the bad be bad? Because both are true, right? Can you let the good be good? Can you let the good be good and the bad be bad? It was echoes of what I've read with Dan Allender, a Christian therapist. He put it this way, that we need to learn to bless what God blesses and to curse what God curses. We need to learn to bless what God blesses and curse what God curses. Our tendency is to want to mash it all together and say, oh, this person, they are totally bad. They are totally bad. Let, let's throw Husto away, for example. Evil murderer. Let me put him in an easy category. Evil and bad. Let me just make him all bad. It would make it easier for me. And there's some people who are like, let's just make them all good. Let's just make them all good. They're all good. I mean, they're all good to me all the time. And then what happens? They disappoint you. Why do they disappoint you? Because they're full of depravity as well as dignity. And then we get messed up in our head. We need to learn to bless what God blesses and curse what God curses because we are all, we are all full of what Noah is full of. Enough to draw God's attention, to stand out as someone who's ready to be blessed and made a covenant with, and in the next moment, sinning like it's nobody's business. What a contradiction we are, but what that's, that's humanity. First of all, image bearers. Second of all, sinners. I want to invite you to think with me for a minute, if I can push this forward. What does this look like to do this, to take this principle and push it forward? I want to push it into a couple scenarios, so think with me here. What does this look like? to actually do this in relationships. And maybe you can think of a relationship where you're currently stuck. You're stuck. You're not sure how to move forward with it. There's been some hard things. You've felt betrayed. Uh, you've felt hurt. Um, you maintain a, a, a level of relationship with people, but it's not really close. It's not really distant, but you've kind of come to terms with I'm going to be maybe a little bit far from you. Think about 
Think about a bad relationship breakup. Here's how this works. You were in love. You were dating someone. Things were going well. Here's what to bless. What to bless is a desire to be loved and to be known and to be seen. And the feelings that you had when you were close to that person. You really felt present and known for and cared for and loved in their space. Now what happens when you break up is all of a sudden you can start cursing what should be blessed. You can curse yourself for even wanting to be known that way. If I didn't need that much affirmation, I never would have been there in the first place. You start cursing what should be blessed. If I didn't have a need to be loved, then I would never be hurt. And we step away from people. It happens in church relationships too. People who have left or hurt you or hurt me. Like if I didn't have a need for them, then I wouldn't even be hurt. And so we begin to curse what God actually intends to bless. What should be blessed is a desire to be in community. It's a good desire. It's worth blessing that. A desire to be known by people and to feel their love, that's worth blessing. What needs to be cursed, if you will, and if that's too strong a word for you, I get that, that's okay. What needs to be kind of, I'm going to use curse, what needs to be cursed and kind of spoken against that this is wrong, is when you're manipulated, when the person abuses you, when they are uh, manipulative of you. Sometimes even my own desire needs to be in the sense that sometimes I've idolized you and I shouldn't be doing that and that's on on me and so what I need to look at and say well the way that that breakup happened the way that that went down that wasn't good what they did was really hurtful and that needs to be named for what it is and we need to distinguish what is good and what is bad in that space it begins to create and build a framework for healing is what it does think about a situation where you grew up in a home and uh, your parents were, mom or dad was kind of performance-oriented for you. You knew that you needed to live up to certain standards. Some of you, that could be attending church on a regular basis. That could be doing well in school. That could be succeeding in a work environment. That could be being moral, whatever your parents define that to be. And you begin to realize that, you know, I need to, I need to keep these standards. What's to be blessed is that your parents love you enough to say there are certain things that are good for you in life. There are certain things that will help you get on a good path. What's to be blessed is the fact that your parents love you enough to create structures for you. What's to be cursed is that your parents unwittingly sometimes have tied their love to performance and somehow made you think that love is contractual, not covenantal. They've made you think that somehow I have to perform to ever feel loved and I'm not sure I can ever reach their love because I'm just getting a contractual relationship and when I do more, they love me and when I don't, they don't. That's to be cursed. To learn to bless what needs to be blessed and curse what needs to be cursed allows for a framework for healing and restoration. Some of you have had a bad church experience. You've left for whatever reason or you're starting to come back and you're just kind of curious about what's going on. The same scenario applies. What's to be blessed is a sense that sometimes at some point in your past, in your history, you have felt close to a community of faith. You maybe felt close to God. You felt called to something beyond yourself, like you belonged in this universe and in this space. You felt a real connection with God. That's to be blessed. What's to be cursed is the fact that you've been hurt by leaders, by people, maybe like me or maybe me or maybe in my role, people like me or people like your peers here, who have been very thoughtless of you, who have missed what we should have seen, who have said things and done things and led things in a way that hurt you, sometimes intentionally even, because we didn't care. We needed to get things done. And you were a victim of that. And that's to be cursed. To be able to create a framework where you can bless what God blesses and curse what God curses doesn't turn you into an angry, maniacal person. It creates a framework 
for you to begin to heal and name what really is and what really isn't. Yeah, I can put it this way. I want to I invite you in your relationships. I want to invite you. I would love for you, if you feel stuck in any of these relationships at a familial level within your church experience, within a workplace, I want to invite you to do something very specific. And this may sound very different than what you've heard before, but I want to invite you to at least consider this. I want to invite you to consider making a dignity impact and depravity impact list. You're like, what in the world is that? What that is, is it's a, it's a list of the people in your life, two, three close relationships, a bad experience, um, something that you're holding on to and you're not sure what to do with, maybe not unlike what Megan was trying to wrestle with, who said, like, how do I manage this? The dignity impact says, I'm going to look at somebody, let's take it a mom, take, it, take, take a mom, I'm going to look at my mom, and I'm going to say, what is the, the dignity of God that was given to her that has positively impacted me? What have I learned about God from her dignity, from the image of God stamped on her? No doubt there's a multitude of things that you can feel, even if your mom was absent. No doubt there's something there that you can learn from the dignity of, of God in her. But the depravity side is equally as important. Your mom was a sinner, and if she's alive, still is a sinner. I, I'll probably love your mom. I'm not against moms. But if you don't ever make that list of what is it, how is it the depravity of my mom has impacted me, the reality is you're still living out of the impact of that. It's just that you don't know it. I use this illustration all the time. It's like if you want to lose weight, the first thing to do is to step on the scale and see how much you weigh. And it doesn't matter whether you step on the scale or not, you still weigh that amount. Right? So if you don't want to step on the scale and see how your mom or dad or whatever impacted you with dignity and depravity, you don't have to, but you still weigh that. And that has still had the same weight on you. And so making this list allows you to see it and to understand we all are, first of all, image bearers and, second of all, sinners. Adam's story tells me that. Noah's story tells me that. Noah's story tells me this. We're all a mixture of dignity and depravity. And can you and can I let the good be good and let the bad be bad? That, I would argue, will create a framework for healing for you, a framework for forgiveness, not a framework to start getting angry at everybody. Not at all, actually. It begins to be incredibly healing to be able to name and identify, yep, here's a dignity and here's a depravity of man on me. I would invite you to have the courage to do what's hard in that space, and to step into that, because we're all, you and me, we're all the mixture of the dignity of God, first of all, and the depravity of man, second of all. And I don't want you to get stuck in relationships, pulled away from God or from others, because I don't know how to reconcile it. That will help create a framework for you to reconcile the disappointments, the hardships, the things that are really, really difficult in all of our relationships. I have more I can say personally I'm not going to this morning because number one, we're out of time, and number two, I don't think I would have the time. But if you want to talk more about this personally with me, uh, reach out my cards in the foyer. be glad to connect more with you guys. Will you pray with me this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning to get into your word and to see in the life of Noah just a real, uh, man, a real dichotomy of his goodness, his beauty, his righteousness, his strength, his goodness, 
And then immediately, immediately his sinfulness that impacted generation upon generation upon generation of people with Ham's decision and all that it meant going forward. Father, we are such a mixture of good and bad. And we've been raised by people who have been good and bad. And we've been impacted by people who have come and left and hurt and been involved and gone. And we have experienced over and over and over again both the dignity of our friends and our friendships and our parents and our siblings and the depravity. And so I pray that you would give us the courage not to get stuck, not to feel like we have to reconcile even all of it, but to be able to be clear with it, to see the good for what it is and to see the bad for what it is. Both need named in our desire for healing and our desire for a framework to walk forward in relationships where we are well with one another. So Father, thank you for the chance to see that in Noah. We pray for strength and courage for what we need to do going forward. In Jesus' name we pray.